If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Jewels. You might think of them as affairs of the heart or spontaneous disputes fueled by a moment of madness. But by looking at a single jewel fought in 1610, Lloyd Bowen's new book, Anatomy of a Jewel, reveals how the practice wasn't always simply a matter of passion or insult. This well-documented jewel was rooted in the complex codes of the gentry and a protracted family feud and led to a controversial face-off and even a manhunt. Eleanor Evans spoke to Lloyd to find out more. So Lloyd, thank you so much for joining the History Extra podcast today. Uh, And your book examines an early 17th century jewel that's documented like no other. Can we start from hearing from you an introduction to the jewel at the centre of your book? Certainly. And thank you very much for having me. The duel at the centre of the book is between two individuals, one from Cheshire and one from Flintshire. The Cheshire gentleman is called John Edgerton. And the Flincher gentleman is called Edward Morgan. Now, these two individuals meet at Highgate, which is now London, but was then a small village just outside of London in the county of Middlesex, and was quite a popular venue for dueling, in fact. And they meet on the 21st of April, 1610, uh, with their seconds uh, in a field. And um, the seconds retire from the field, and the two men duel. This duel results in a death. The uh, Cheshire gentleman, John Edgerton, is killed and Edward Morgan flees with his second from the scene to be pursued by the London authorities and is subsequently apprehended. And the investigation into what happened in that field is what turns up quite a lot of the evidence upon which my book is based and the questions which surround precisely uh, what occurred and who was, we know who was culpable, but what were they culpable of? Were they culpable of manslaughter? Were they culpable of murder? Um, what would happen in that eventuality? And as I detail in the book, the outcome is perhaps one that you might not expect, which is that despite there being a, a homicide, a clear homicide, Edward Morgan ultimately will walk free from uh, from custody. Hmm. Yes, so spoiler alert there, that there's uh, lots more to come on that. And we'll get into um, the acts of the duel and the dispute that it was over, I'm sure, in a moment. But if we can pick up on that significance um, that is, is central to your book, is that it, it wasn't necessarily a duel incredibly out of the ordinary, but what makes it extraordinary is the amount of information we have about it. Could we hear a little more from you on that? Yes, certainly. It is, in some ways, an interesting discussion about how common this was at the time and how this isn't, in in, in some ways, an extraordinary duel. It is a duel between two gentlemen in a period when dueling was on the rise and was causing anxiety in England and Wales more generally. The king at the time, King James I, for example, 
was very exercised about the death of what he saw as the noble blood um, of the land because of an increase in dueling. Uh, dueling was very popular on the continent as well, and there were anxieties that what was going on here was an importation of kind of foreign practices. So the duel itself, in some ways, is, I hesitate to say ordinary, because these were sort of unusual events, but it was part of a growing trend at the time. What does make it very unusual, however, is the wealth of evidence that surrounds it, which um, I was able to uncover principally within the National Archives in Kew. Um, also, however, there are some interesting documents uh, that remain among papers which headed over to the Atlantic to Los Angeles in the Huntingdon Library. And this remarkable sort of cache of papers um, concerns the inquests and the subsequent legal proceedings over the duel, uh, which we find from the coroner's court, which was convened to um, the inquest on the body of John Edgerton, and then subsequently some of the papers that emerge out of the prosecution of Edward Morgan for his death uh, in King's Bench, the principal uh, criminal court uh, of London at the time. What's unusual is most of the material that we have uh, for this case, we simply would not have for other cases because it was as a matter of course that the sorts of materials upon which my book is based, depositions, examinations, interrogations, answering of questions, and so on, that material would have been routinely discarded. It was not part of the official record of the court. So when we turn to duels, for example, from this period, our evidential basis is in fact quite thin. It's quite meager. We are often um, we often need to resort to try to reconstruct dueling from relatively silent documents in some ways. Often we have a coronial inquest, and we wouldn't be able to tell it was a duel unless we were able to infer, for example, that we've got two gentlemen involved an elite kind of weapon like a rapier, and it was in a place such as Highgate where these um, individuals would meet. It's a relatively dry document in that sense. Alternatively, we have some printed sources which talk about dueling at the time, partly because of this anxiety which occurs around it. But often these are sort of treatises about violence and how individuals should not be undertaking these sorts of practices, rather than what exactly occurred in the duel or what goes on in an individual instance of these things. And so what's interesting about the Morgan Edgerton duel, I think, is the way in which what we might describe as a commonplace duel from the Jacobean period is revealed in some rich detail about what um, what occurred, who was standing where, um, how they, for example, scoped out where to fight, what was said, um, and the subsequent investigation of the duel, which suggests who was culpable um, and, uh, and for what, how, uh, how we interpret this homicide. Um, this arises from another interesting aspect of the duel, which is that it wasn't uh, it didn't run through the courts in what we might describe as an ordinary manner for a homicide. In other words, it was not a simple prosecution by the king for um, a homicide or a breach of the peace. It was actually prosecuted as a, an appeal of murder, a private prosecution for murder um, by uh, John Edgerton's uh, father. Confusingly, unfortunately, the fathers have the same names as the sons in this case. He was also John Edgerton. And he brings a private appeal. Uh, appeal of murder against uh, against Edward Morgan because he thinks that the court proceedings are stacked against um, a, a fair trial. And these papers are essentially his private archive of the, um, of the documents that were gathered around the investigation of the case. They are the Edgerton papers that are collected in a strange sort of part of the National Archives, the so-called State Papers Additional, a little little dusty corner of uh, of the National Archives down there in Kew, um, and so it's it's 
it's an unusual survival to get this kind of material together. And by bringing in some material from uh, King's Bench, but also from other corpuses of Edgerton papers elsewhere, hopefully I was able to sort of piece together in unusual detail what actually went on in this confrontation. Yes, definitely. It's, it's remarkable that family documents and a single appeal of this nature can shed such light. Um, and I did want to ask, because you make a, a point of um, saying in your introduction how it also um, perhaps shines a light on a period of history we're not seeing, um, certainly reflected perhaps in popular history. Um, royals have been studied and much more recently, um, lower down the social scale have been studied. But this area, the gentry, are perhaps neglected in some way. Indeed. And I don't want to suggest that history has never talked about gentlemen because, of course, you know, it has and at some length. And I think that there are very important trends in history now which are looking at groups that have been marginalised in our narratives. I do actually make the point, however, that perhaps in shifting our perspective somewhat, we have lost a little bit of the sight of the gentleman, and in particular the kind of gentleman that I look at here which is to say these are not individuals who are of the first order in power, influence, and so on in their localities. And it is worth mentioning, I guess, that we are dealing with individuals from localities, not necessarily from London and the southeast of England. They are what we might describe as parish gentlemen, uh, individuals who are well-off, who have servants, who have impressive houses, and so on but who perhaps are often written off as simply an amorphous elite. And we talk about them, when we do talk about them, almost as though they were the same as an aristocrat, which they weren't. They were not as powerful. They were not as significant. And so I think that there is a story to be told about uh, 16th and 17th century Britain that picks back up on individual gentry stories. Because while these are not necessarily the great movers and shakers at court, these are not necessarily individuals who can mobilize armies and forces and so on, they are nevertheless locally very significant. They are also quite populous. There's quite a number of them. These are the individuals who are populating the commissions of the peace that sort of run local courts in places like Cheshire or places like Flintshire. They are the sheriffs. They are the individuals who assess your taxes and so on. These are the people who often get elected to the House of Commons. Um, if there's a seat free, you know, usually the, the upper gentry really will get the, the, the prime sort of seats, but there's enough to go around. One of these sort of individuals might well manage to slip in. And so they are a powerful stratum of society, but I would suggest a relatively neglected one. And one of the dimensions of their, their worlds that I want to make a little bit more clear to people through this book, I guess, is the way in which the, this stratum of society, these, these parish gentry, still uh, had ideas about honour, ideas about nobility, ideas about their status, which they wanted to defend. And they would defend it sometimes very aggressively. And one of the ways of defending that honour um, is in a duel. And what I also wanted to suggest in the book is that People might have an impression of what a duel is in their heads. Often it's from a later period. We think about dueling often with pistols and so on, um, you know, ten paces and all that kind of stuff. Um, however, you know, dueling is also often seen as arising from matters of a moment, matters of immediate uh, dishonor, where, you know, you slap with a glove and you go off to a field and, you you know, you have a fight. In fact, what I want to suggest in this book as well is that duels can arise out of family disputes, and you can see your honour as being involved in uh, a confrontation, a conflict, which arises out of a relatively long time frame, not necessarily just a, a, you know, a, an unkind word having to be immediately given restitution. Uh, and so this duel also throws some light on that because there's quite a backstory to it as well, which was going on for a couple of years. And so um, the gentry of this 
stratum of society, as I as, as I mentioned, I think are interesting for throwing some light on the dynamics of dueling more generally in this period, which, as I said, is a concern that runs right up to the ro- uh, to the king, to the royal court. Yes, definitely, and I think I was guilty of that sort of assumption of duels being matters of the heart and a personal insult. But no, this this does um, definitely uh, show otherwise. So if we can turn then to those two families yeah, at the centre of your account, where did they sit then in this in this gentry and uh, what was their historical dispute behind this duel? So the two families provide an interesting contrast between one another in, in many ways. If I'll start with the Edgerton family, perhaps, um, The man who dies in the field in Highgate is John Edgerton. His father is Sir John Edgerton. um, And they come from a place that's very well endowed with gentry at this time, Cheshire. It is notorious, as it were, for having a very vibrant and populated gentry culture. Um, Sir John, however, um, in the Elizabethan period, is a man who climbs to the top of the sort of greasy pole of gentry society in Cheshire. By being a landowner, he's a really very acquisitive individual. He is emblematic in some ways of an Elizabethan sort of proto-capitalist, if you like. He is somebody who um, uh, marries well, but also uh, is born into quite a wealthy family. And through those two things um, and his, his inheritance and um, some some clever marriages, he is able to acquire vast tracts of land in Cheshire, uh, in Staffordshire, and indeed in Flintshire. And he sees his honour and that of his family as bound up in this sort of acquisition of land. The acquisition of land, in fact, brings him into conflict with a, a number of figures in the local society, the most important of whom is the Earl of Derby, against whom he has a very protracted uh, dispute over a place called Bidston Park, which he ultimately loses to his great chagrin. He is a man who becomes the chief justice of the peace um, in uh, Cheshire. He is therefore an individual with considerable power. It's based upon this sort of landed wealth, however, that he has acquired um, over the decades prior. He is a Protestant. Um, he is also connected to the family of the uh, the Lord Lord Keeper of England, one of the great sort of offices of state, uh, Thomas Edgerton, uh, Baron Ellesmere. On the other hand, we've got another family in, in Flintshire here, the Morgans. They come from a place um, called Llanasaf, um, or and their family their family name has uh, their, sorry their household has about three names. It, it can be called Gwilgra or Goldengrove um, or Goldgreave. In the book, I refer to it as Goldgreave. It's a very um, nice house which Edward Morgan's father built. Now, this Edward Morgan, I apologize, he's also called Edward Morgan. He comes from really quite humble beginnings. And so he forms something of a contrast with Sir John Edgerton. And how he makes his uh, makes his way in the world is also something of a contrast, because he too is emblematic of a thread within Elizabethan culture, in that he is a man who makes his way through the law, through the professions. He manages to become a successful lawyer. He builds up a legal practice that is focused on uh, Northeast Wales and Northwest England. Uh, he is evidently very successful in this legal practice, and he uh, acquires land to no way the extent of the Edgertons, but he acquires land and, and sort of takes on the trappings and the accoutrements of a gentleman. And so he's something of an Aravist. He's something of a new arrival. And what's also interesting in terms of the contrast with the Edgerton family is that Edward Morgan is a Catholic. And so after the Reformation, this is a tricky path to negotiate. He becomes a justice of the peace, which he would need to take an oath of allegiance and so on. Um, I think he probably does it with his fingers crossed behind his back a little bit, because it's clear that he is part of a group of gentlemen in this part of the world, in Flintshire, that remain loyal to the old faith, to Catholicism. And they are probably worshipping clandestinely and in private and so on. But the son, the dualist, Edward Morgan, it's quite interesting that he has a grand tour 
as part of his education. He also goes into one of the inns of court like his father does. He's probably being groomed to take over. He is the eldest son. But in this grand tour, he tours around some of the heartlands of continental Catholicism. And in a rather unusual biographical poem that is written to him in Welsh uh, in 1627, some years after the duel, we are told that he actually sort of hobnobs with the uh, with, with the, with the Catholics in in uh, in Rome, even the men of the Pope. We are told, and so this is a family that provides an interesting contrast in terms of its background the way that they came into money, into land and authority, but also in terms of their religion. It's worth pointing out that it doesn't appear that the duel was necessarily what we might describe as a confessional or religious conflict, but it certainly is probably a point of friction and a point of difference between the two families. Okay, so if we we um, take that then and apply it to the two men at the centre of the duel who you've already introduced, um, what can you say about the, their roles within these families and how that impacts their sense of honour, of defending their family name? So what I think as well is interesting about this duel is we are not dealing with the heads of the family uh, who are coming together and defending familial honour. Rather, what we're looking at are our sons, uh, Edward Morgan is an elder son. Uh, John Edgerton is a younger son. And I think what we have here is an interesting dynamic of sons defending their father's name and defending the family name too. So the duel itself emerges out of a property dispute. It emerges out of something as quotidian and as boring and as ordinary as that, in which two families. In fact, it's not the Morgans. It's a close associate and family kin group of the Morgans, a family called the Mostyn family. And the Edgertons are having a dispute over who gets title to a really quite uh, significant and lucrative bit of land in northeast Wales called Talaka. Um, it's got quite a lot of coal under it, for example. It generates quite a lot of income. And this dispute is, it turns hot, if you like. It's not just one that runs through the court. And insults are thrown around between members of this family. And this then boils over into these two sons stepping up, if you like, and trying to defend the honour of their fathers and of their families more generally. What is also quite interesting, I think, when we take a look at these two individuals and why they might be drawn to getting um, pulled into a dispute of honour, is that they are both not quite at the top of the tree, as it were. They are, they are aware, shall we say, of their shortcomings in that honour community. Yes, that does make sense, and all such interesting factors at play there. Um, and I wonder if we can get into then how this duel comes about. We've got these surviving, some surviving sources, letters of challenge. Um, what's going on there? Well, letters of challenge are fantastic, um, fantastic documents from this period. It's, it's a pity that not many of them survive because they are very rich documents to think about honour with. And they deal in, as I mentioned, some really quite aggressive and vituperative language. So letters of challenge are essentially ways in which you impugn the reputation of your opponent. And what should happen then, of course, is that if they do not defend their reputation, well, they are not worthy of it. They're not worthy of the honour, right? They're not individuals who partake of that whole system. But of course, if they do defend it, then the way that they do it is say, right, that's enough. We must move to uh, defend honour uh, in, in a, in a time-honour cherished way. We must move to the field of battle. And if we take a look at the uh, letter of challenge that one of the letters of challenge that is sent by um, Edward Morgan. And I don't want to muddy the waters too much, but there are challenges to duels that happen in over this property dispute in 1608. And then there is another set of challenge letters that happened just before the duel in 1610. But if we take a look at um, the challenge letter 
that Edward Morgan sends one of them in, in 1608, we see that he is saying, you know, you are a base sneaking villain. You are a filthy black, your father's a filthy black knight. If you had a just regard of prince and country, considering upon what terms we now stand, you would not provoke men to further quarrel. You carest not who thou wrongest, nor who be murdered abroad, while you are like a rascal sitting at home. I might once venture my life to rid the Commonwealth of such vipers as you. And of course, the dynamic here is, are you going to sit there and take us? Are you going to allow me to speak in such terms of yourself and your family? Or are you going to move to what is necessary? This is what Edward Morgan wants, because... There is a legal consideration here, is that if he just goes around the house with a sword out, potentially, of course, you know, what will happen is he'll be taken uh, before the magistrate for a fray. So what he wishes for is to be, uh, is for them to meet as equals, as gentlemen. There is a, a degree, particularly in printed literature, in the sort of civil conduct books that suggest, well, you should be able to laugh this stuff off if you're a true gentleman. There is a sense in which honor cultures are pliable and malleable, and there's not only one way to deal with this kind of stuff. There is a suggestion by, for example, Sir Francis Bacon at this time that what you should do is you should allow these kind of slings and arrows simply to, to fall off your because you have a sufficiently thick skin of a gentleman. Um, however, these challenge letters are often of such a high sort of provoking language that they are almost impossible to ignore. And because John Edgerton sends a, a, a challenge letter to Edward Morgan, this challenge letter unfortunately doesn't survive uh, amongst our documents. Interestingly, of course, because our documents are from the Edgerton papers. So it seems to be one that his dad likely wanted to lose. This then leads to an agreement. We will no longer tarry, if you like, I am happy to meet you on the on the field of honor tomorrow. And that's what happens is that the challenge letter is sent uh, on the 20th of April and they meet early in the morning on the 21st at Highgate. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. He looks at the body and he deposes that what he finds are three entry wounds to the body of John Edgerton. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So the scene is set. And and to the this duel then, um, what do we know for sure. And I know that's a horrible question about what happened on the morning of the duel. It's a great question and a horrible question. Because what do we know happened um, in the duel brings us directly up against our evidence. 
And our evidence is fatally compromised, if that's not too bad a pun, by the fact that there's only one surviving witness, and that witness is the individual who did the killing, is Edward Morgan. John Edgerton dies in this duel. So we do have four participants that turn up to the field in Highgate to discharge the duel. It is our two protagonists, John Edgerton and Edward Morgan, and their respective seconds, William Robinson and William Morgan. And it turns out that William Morgan is Edward's brother, which it seems that the other side weren't aware of initially, and that causes some problems. What we do know is that they spent quite a lot of time scoping out a field, relatively secluded, relatively secure, because we need to remember that there is no legal dispensation for dueling in this period. Although we call it a dispute of honour, this is effectively a breach of the peace like any other. It is two individuals going off with deadly weapons to have a fight, and that is against the king's peace. And so they go to a relatively secluded field early in the morning because they don't want individuals around. Although in Highgate, there are some individuals in nearby areas uh, making bricks, for example, in a kiln. The field is important because it is seen to be level. There are also some discussions about uh, who stands where because they don't want the sun in their eyes. They want it to be entirely fair, so the story goes. And then, interestingly, the two seconds leave the field. And as the two seconds leave the field, so in some ways our historical vision is constricted because we have fewer witnesses. So what happens in this field? Well, we know that a man is killed. That man is John Edgerton. What we do have is we have several statements from Edward Morgan before magistrates, justices of the peace of Middlesex, as to what happens. And those examinations are very interesting because what they present us is what we might describe as a duel of honour undertaken by a gentleman on equal terms. Because um, Edward Morgan acknowledges that they fight, that they have checked their swords beforehand for them being equal length, and so there's no advantage, they fight. And um, John Edgerton actually has him down uh, on the ground at one point. He kind of has to say this, I guess, because Edward Morgan is very injured in this duel. He appears to have a number of defensive wounds to his left arm, some several deep cuts made by a sword, and he acknowledges that he was down on the ground at one point. He says that he was then able to get up, that he then um, stabbed uh, John Edgerton with his sword through the chest, it appears he is, he is indicating, face to face. This is key, face to face. And he says, I perceived that I hurt him badly because my sword was bloodied up to 10 inches. You know, when you think, yeah, that's that's not a scratch on a band-aid, that, that's going to be serious. There is a single fatal wound. John Edgerton turns from him, staggers over to a hedge, collapses over it, when the seconds who are in another uh, the other field catch sight of him. And there, we are told, when the sec one of the seconds manages to get him, he has three gasps of breath and he dies. So that all sounds like a duel. Great. However, when we get into the coroner's court, we have a, a, an extraordinary deposition of um, a surgeon who supposedly was just kind of passing because the 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 um, the the inquest happens at an inn the day afterwards on the 22nd of April in, in Highgate. So we don't have any hospitals or any, you know, sterile areas at this time. It's done in an inn. And a view is taken of the body of John Edgerton. And this surgeon, Alexander Lillington, is around and he looks at the body and he deposes that what he finds are three entry wounds to the body of John Edgerton. And he details where they are. 
And he also details that they appear to be traveling downwards into the body, for example, by the collarbone, into the chest and under the armpit. Now, those are not the sort of wounds that you can incur in a duel of honor face to face with a single thrust as Edward Morgan had it. So when you ask what happened in that field, it is impossible to tell. However, on the best kind of guess that we have from the um, from what passes for forensic evidence in um, in 1610, it does seem that something dodgy occurs. And part of what is interesting about the this Edgerton archive of, of, of papers is how they try and work through all of these depositions that are given, for example, by the brick. Uh, the, the the brickmaker who notices John Edgerton collapsing and gives a deposition of who was standing where at that point in time. And it does appear that something dodgy happened. And what might have happened, according to the ways in which the Edgertons work through the evidence, is that when um, Edward Morgan was at John Edgerton's mercy, when he was down on the ground, when he had been hit, then they, um, they surmise that perhaps William Morgan, the brother, came from behind and stabbed John Edgerton uh, at least twice, perhaps three times, uh, fatally wounding him. Now, if that is the case, um, it is a conspiracy. It is a conspiracy which makes uh, Edward Morgan just as culpable as his brother of murder. Um, and so... The problem that we have is that after the duel, William Morgan flees. He likely flees abroad uh, to, uh, we are told, perhaps to the wars that are happening in Scandinavia. So we do have another protagonist that is around here, this guy, William Robinson, who is the second of John Edgerton. And Robinson really comes under the crosshairs of the examination of the, uh, of the Edgerton family because we are told he knew Edward Morgan had been to university with him. He was, moreover, a Welshman, shock horror. He was potentially then in league with this conspiracy and that his account of being an impartial second and of helping John Edgerton whenever he could now looked distinctly suspect. William Robinson at all points uh says, you know, I, I I was standing apart. I didn't have anything to do with this. As soon as I knew that um, John Edgerton was injured, I went to, to help him as best I could. So we do have two narratives um, that in some ways are impossible to weigh up as historians. This is one of the great and one of the enormously problematic things about being an historian is that we don't have a definitive answer to this. Is it conspiracy? Or is it a lawful duel? I think the balance of probability suggests that it was the former. However, one of the things an historian can't do, I think, is put himself in or herself in the place of being that judge and necessarily determining on the basis of the evidence that we have absolutely which one was true. We have to be faithful to our evidence. And our evidence, I suppose, suggests that Edward Morgan's not telling the whole truth. Does that make him a conspirator and a murderer? Maybe. Um, what we do know, however, is that John Edgerton is unlawfully killed. That's the best, I suppose, that we can say. And it looks like that there was some malfeasance that went on in that field in Highgate. Right. Some, some such interesting possibilities there for many to ruminate over, I'm sure. Um, and just something that surprised me so much, and perhaps this is a bit of a naive point to make, but when you're a historian relying on this sort of evidence, it surprised me that there is there is just so much for you to look at in this case. In part because that's what makes this case so unusual. Because the material upon which I've managed to base my account of this uh, duel was routine routinely discarded as part of the legal process. Normally, what you would have in any kind of a fray or fight or duel of this nature would be the kind of investigation that happens in the Morgan Edgerton case. But when it went through the procedures of the court, 
none of that material is deemed relevant or pertinent to what we might describe as the official record of the court. And so what we would have for the coroner's court, for example, would be a fairly bald outline of this individual died. So it would be, you know, John Edgerton died. Um, there is a wound on his body, which is so long, so ma- so many inches deep. And we do actually have this um have this coroner's inquest as part of part of the archive, but this is normally all that would survive. And it would tell you that he was probably unlawfully killed, which is then a, a, a starting gun for the proper legal process of the courts to go on. They would have some of the depositional evidence before them. There isn't, you know, a defense lawyer or anything. There isn't any of this material being taken down by a scribing court or any kind of a stenographer or equivalent at this time. It would be adjudicated. There would be a decision made. That decision would be recorded on parchment. All the other stuff, which is interestingly frequently on much more perishable paper, usually would be um, excised, removed. And so what we might describe as witness evidence, albeit one uh, evidence that has gone through some of the filters of early mo- the early modern legal system, has survived in this case, Whereas in every other duel that I know of, at least, but um, certainly most other cases that we might describe of murder, um, manslaughter, uh, certainly that go through to King's Bench, our record is of a much sparser nature and certainly far less colourful. The kind of official record of the court, the court wants to know who did it, what's he guilty of, and kind of that's it that law has been done, you know, justice has been done. Here we have, if you like, all the preliminaries to that official record of the court, justice has been done, which the court in its own purview would have seen as simply extraneous to what needed to go on file. So that's why your question is not a naive one, that in fact, this amount of evidence, and it is several hundred folios of material, is indeed very, very unusual. Uh, and it all um, does culminate in this investigation, um, which what w- what is the outcome? What can you tell our listeners about uh, how this all ends up without skipping over that massive evidence that is all in your book? How does sure. it all end up? So the coroner returns a verdict of murder and manslaughter. That isn't determinative. That That is simply something that then goes up to a higher court to make a decision of. Um, there is a lot of uh, jiggery-pokery that happens, attempting sub- suborning of witnesses and so on. Um, by the Morgan family to get it just returned as manslaughter or a lesser charge. They're unsuccessful in that. So it goes up to the higher courts as murder when it gets into King's Bench. Um, Again, there is a lot of jiggery-pokery and indeed packing of the jury um, at King's Bench. And one of the reasons why this unusual appeal of murder route is taken by the Edgerton family is because they think the jury has been packed, suborned by witnesses who are favorable um, to the Morgan case. And so they, they they want to proceed by this, what we might describe as a private route. It's, it's unusual at this time, but not sort of extra legal or anything. That effectively falls down. And so we then get into the into the case where an ordinary course of justice is taken at King's Bench. And what happens there is, despite the anxieties of the Edgerton family, I think in no small measure because of the indictment that is sent up by the coroner's court, which details three wounds to the body, um, they are left with very little latitude in some ways, but to find this, um, you know, a case of murder. That, that that Edward Morgan is guilty of murder. And so in this period, what happens then is very clear. Uh, Edward Morgan should be hung. He should um, go to the gallows for what he has done. However, things are not so clear, and in some ways, again, are more interesting because they're not so clear. Because Edward Morgan... And his farm and his father have friends in high places. The principal friend that they have is one of the major courtiers um, of James's reign, a man called the Earl of Suffolk. 
And the Earl of Suffolk is Lord Chamberlain. He is one of the principal officers of the realm. And for example, when Edward Morgan arrives at uh, court for his trial, he is accompanied by the Earl of Suffolk's son. And we are told a number of other great lords and 500 other Welshmen cheering him on. You know, this, this is a demonstration of the fact that this guy is connected. So after the verdict, um, after Edward Morgan is found guilty of murder, we are in a period of an interregnum, if you like, waiting for sentence to be carried out. What evidently happens is that um, Edward Morgan and his father are able to pull some serious strings. And they are able to get, um, get the ear of King James himself. Now, let's remember, this is a king who is making noises about how much he hates dueling. And indeed, in 1613, shortly after this, he um, he begins a campaign against dueling. And I do wonder whether his experiences in the Morgan Edgerton duel helped sort of make him think, well, we've got to stamp out on this kind of problematic, um, deeply problematic gentry behavior. But they managed to get the ear of the king likely through the Earl of Suffolk. And of course, the king is the fount of all justice and he is the fount of all mercy as well. And so what happens is Edward Morgan is able to obtain a pardon from King James I. Um, the name on the pardon is that of the Earl of Pembroke, who kind of appears to be parachuted in at the 11th hour as the beard for the Earl of Suffolk, in my opinion. And, um, you, you know, I think this costs Edward Morgan something like 26 shillings or something. It's quite graphic when you think about all the thieves all of the individuals who have gone to the gallows for a loaf of bread at this time, that kind of stuff, when he seems to be able to buy his life for you know just 26 shillings. But that is what happens, is that the king uh, issues Edward Morgan with a pardon. Edward Morgan presents this to the court. The court then tries to cover its own back a little bit by saying that, well, the indictment did say that there were three wounds, but the indictment appears to be faulty. It seems likely that there was just one fatal wound. And so on this kind of technicality, if you like, we can save face as well and send Edward Morgan into the world as a free man. So, yeah, we get this situation in which this fight between two relatively obscure gentlemen ends up, if you like, on the desk of the king, who signs the sign manual for a pardon and... The guy who is, at the very least, guilty of manslaughter, but almost certainly gu guilty of... Well, he is found guilty of murder by by the uh, by the courts, uh, manages uh, to walk out a free man. And some of the individuals who are talking against dueling at this time do, in fact, talk about the way in which this is a real double standard, that what you have are gentlemen who are able to kind of get things knocked down to manslaughter and then are able to walk free from court or you get cases like this in which even when, and it is unusual, even when you find somebody guilty of murder, they are able to somehow sort of manipulate the system so that they can uh, walk free. So it's, it's clearly a, a, a very important jewel in our understanding of, of this period. And I wonder if we can zero back out um, from the, this case and and give a little bit more of an overview to perhaps wrap up of the, the increased understanding it does give us of elite violence at this time. Yeah, surely. So your question about elite, elite violence is an interesting one. It's often seen by historians as the medieval period is a violent one and gentlemen are violent in that period, we get to sort of the 16th and the 17th centuries and the gentry order becomes pacified. They become far less likely to, to engage in these sorts of acts of violence and much more likely to revert to the courts. It thus becomes a much more civilized kind of country. What this case, and when you look at the dynamics of elite violence more generally help us sort of uh, highlight is the fact that in that narrative is far too even and far too progressive. In fact, there are lots and lots of bumps and ups and downs on that road. And I think that 
seeing the law as a substitute for violence is also in some ways quite problematic because one of the reasons why this duel happens is that there's a huge amount of litigation over this inheritance dispute happening and it keeps the tensions at boiling point between these families. But even on a more uh, macro level, when you look at the trajectories of violence, there, is, there are peaks and troughs in this. And there are real peaks, for example, in the 1610s and the 1620s, followed by periods in which it cools off somewhat. Um, and so the, the, the trajectory of elite violence hereafter is problematic because what we get in the 1640s and 50s is a civil war. When lots and lots of violence between gentlemen is happening, when dueling royalists in particular are seen to be emblematic. And in fact, in the Restoration period, dueling is on the up. It is, um, it is really quite prevalent and declines somewhat thereafter. So when you take a look at how this fits into the narrative of elite violence and gentry honour, I think what it does is it helps complicate our simple picture of moving just from a violent medieval period to a civilised and pacified early modern and then modern period. What we find, in fact, is that um, for, for many complicated reasons, violence amongst the elite oscillates and can, in fact, be generated by the law as much as pacified through the law. And so we do need, I think, to bear in mind that our picture of the trajectories of violence in this period might need revisiting somewhat, if only to throw a little bit more colour and a little bit more dynamism into what is evidently a, um, a trajectory and a picture of violence that's in flux and that changes over time. And that our, our picture of a society that it gets increasingly less violent, I wonder whether it is a, is, a, is a picture that we make to make ourselves feel good as much as anything, to make ourselves believe that history is on a trajectory towards a more civil and more pacified world. And you know, you know, when you take a look at the most supposedly civilized Western culture today um, in the cities of America, that a degree of violence and so on is um, prevalent to a degree that might well even shock an early modern uh, protagonist. So we need to think a little bit more perhaps about our immediate picture of the past as more violent than the present. And although I'm aware that it's dangerous to extrapolate too much from a single case, I think that what this very vivid case does for us is it opens a revealing window onto a complicated picture rather than making us feel good that, in fact, we've always been getting better over time, as it were, in our relations with one another, um, whether that be um, gentlemen or, uh, you know, within families. That was Lloyd Bowen, Anatomy of a Jewel in Jacobean England, Gentry, Honour, Violence and the Law. It's published by Boydell and Brewer and is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. <laughs>